American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. So between 1941 and 1945, the U.S. drops about 3 million tons of bombs on Germany and Japan. This is industrial capitalist war to the extreme in every sense. First of all, it takes a huge investment of industrial production. Of the 200,000 combat aircraft that the U.S. builds in World War II, 35,000 were heavy bombers used for attacking the homelands of enemies. These were expensive. One of the most common was the B-17 Flying Fortress, which cost a quarter million dollars in the 1940s. In fact, strategic bombers cost the U.S. $10 billion overall during the war, or more than the entire 1940 federal budget. And this is 5% of all war spending right there. And that doesn't even account for the cost of fighter aircraft to escort them to target, the munitions, the fuel, and the training. And that pushes the total up to about 20% of all U.S. war spending on strategic bombing. And strategic bombing was costly in other ways as well. 10,000 of those bombers were shot down, along with 8,000 of the fighter aircraft that flew alongside them. 80,000 aircrew died in the effort. This is the population of a small city, and it's also something like a quarter of all U.S. war deaths during World War II. 500,000 Germans and 500,000 Japanese civilians were killed. So what could justify this uh, investment of resources? And what could justify the direct violation, or so it seemed, of a long-standing rule within the overall laws of Western war? A rule which directly exempted non-combatants from deliberate attack by combatants. And strategic bombing was the deliberate attack by combatants on non-combatants. That, non that much is, is quite clear. To understand these shifts, you have to understand World War I and how that transformed people's thinking about uh, what, what modern war was like. World War I was a brutal shock. Tens of millions of people died, including many millions of soldiers in the trenches of the Western Front. And yet, even as millions of people were dying, civilians in London and other English cities or in German cities seemed to be living a fairly placid, undisturbed kind of life. This dissonance was troublesome, certainly to soldiers who went back home on leave, but even to some civilians as well. And what was also the case was that the industrial production that these civilians were able to accomplish was part of what fueled and made possible the continuing war uh, in the trenches uh, just a few miles away. Some thinkers began to reason, in particular in the few years after World War I, that the way to create a shorter, less bloody war would actually, almost paradoxically, be to make those civilians, if you will, feel the pain of the war. And maybe even more importantly, affect uh, and limit their capacity to support the war through their industrial production, uh, which put the, the guns on the battlefield and the ammunition and the guns and the fuel in the trucks and so on and so forth. With another new technology, with a new technology that had emerged during World War I, uh, the airplane, the military airplane, uh, with this technology becoming more and more successful uh, and more and more capable during the 1920s, thinkers began to reason that you could use aircraft to bomb 
the uh, strategic productive capacity of economies to destroy the factories that supported their war machines from the air and limit their ability to actually carry out modern war. If you could do that, thinkers reasoned, and if you could frighten the civilian population to such an extent that they would demand an end to, to war, policymakers and voters uh, and civilians would all be much sooner uh, to, they, they, would, they would come to the idea of peace much more readily than they had done in World War I. Thus, bombing factories, destroying or at least threatening civilian populations, these things would actually in a way be humane acts. They would bring an end to war before it could last as long and be as bloody as it had been in 1914 and 1918. Now, some of the thinkers and theorists who articulate this policy first are people like Giulio Douay, who was an Italian uh, army officer, or Billy Mitchell, who was a U.S. Army uh, aviation officer, and, and they're articulating these ideas in the 1920s. But the first people to put it into practice, not surprisingly, are the decision makers of Nazi Germany. After practicing uh, by bombing Spanish cities as they intervene on the nationalist side in the Spanish uh, Civil War, they're ready to go in 1939 and 1940. And what's uh, perhaps the most sort of iconic attack is their bombing of the city of Rotterdam in the course of their invasion of, of the Netherlands in early 1940. But where the Germans really take things to another level uh, is in late 1940. After conquering France, uh, being, being stopped at the edge of the, the English Channel, unable yet to mount an invasion of Britain itself, Hitler uh, and his uh, closest associates decide that the thing to do is reduce Britain to surrender by bombing Britain's civilian population from the air. And so in weeks of raids that are called the Blitz by, by uh, London civilians, they kill something like 50,000 civilians. But a surprising thing happens. British citizens are not made more ready to surrender. They are not made more ready to come to terms by the German attack. In fact, you could argue that they are simply made more resolute. And the thing that we have to think about as we look at what happens over the course of the rest of the war is whether this is because of some special property of British citizens or whether this is in fact not an uncommon uh, uh, outcome for civilian populations that are literally being brought onto the battlefield. Perhaps they start to think of themselves as soldiers who have a new kind of commitment to uh, securing victory in the war. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University.